All right, you guys know we're going through the parables. This is just a quick review of last week. One of the questions we were tackling is why did Jesus even speak in parables? Why would he not just come out and speak the truth directly? We have the verses and the main points that we had last week up here on the screen. But here's really the summary of it. Jesus was trying to really separate people between people who wanted to know what he was really saying and people who were just kind of interested in hearing the story. Now, we said that parables were something that was used in the time to speak, and people used parables, so Jesus didn't invent this. But at the same time, he used it extensively, yes, to fulfill prophecy, because it said that he would speak in parables and teach in parables, but also because he wanted to see the people who really wanted to understand the meaning at a deeper level would follow him and ask, what did that mean exactly? And we see that happening in Scripture a lot. Okay? We also know that the parables were used by Jesus sometimes to disguise truth from those who were trying to discredit him, and sometimes the parables were used in another way. And that is, they kind of started to germinate like a seed inside of us. And you're going to see tonight that these parables are pretty rich with meaning. We're going to be covering two of them uh, tonight that I really love these two parables. And you just can't, you can't just deal with them in half an hour. They just kind of grow as you leave and you think about them more and more. There just seems to be more and more meanings that go with them. The first one is the parable of the talents. This week in one of the MBA classes that I teach on campus, we covered the meaning of what to do with money. You know, last week we talked about riches. These are two parables we're going to deal with tonight on stewardship, okay? And they kind of go pretty well together. The questions I said, the reason we're studying the parables, a lot of times we need to get a meaning out of them that's more than just reading what Jesus was saying to the audience he was speaking to, that they still have meanings that reverberate for us. The first one is the parable of the talents. The question that we ask a lot of times when we look at the parable of the talents is, what exactly have you entrusted to me and what am I doing with it? That's really the central question that I want to get out of this parable tonight as we look at it. Let's walk through the parable and go through it. Matthew 25, you can follow along or just look on the screen. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. You know, we said in the beginning about our parables that a lot of times when the parables were going on and Jesus was speaking them, he was going to take on a lot of the characters in the parable. I think it's pretty clear right from the beginning that Jesus is the man going on a journey. Does that make sense? Anyone agree? Disagree? He's saying that it's like a man going on a journey and he entrusts to his servants, to his disciples, to you, certain amounts of talents. You've heard this sermon a million times before. You know that the talents are not just what we make them out to be in the church a lot of times. We like the talents to be gifts. We like the talents to be something other than money because it's a lot more convenient for us to deal with these talents. But look at this. It says very specifically, to one he gave five talents of money. In this parable, the measure is money. So to set the stage, Jesus is saying, I'm going away. I'm giving each of you an amount of money in this parable. And then I'm going to go away on my journey. Okay? While he was gone, the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. 
After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received received it back with interest. Take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. What's the main point of the parable? What's going on here? Okay, and how does he model it? How's the stewardship modeled? What does he want his people to do? Invest. Invest, okay. What's another word? It's a good word. I like the word invest. So? So, I like, you know what, if I took a word out of this thing, it would be to multiply. He, if he, if he gave us a word, I think, invest is a great word, by the way, because in a way it implies that multiplication. I think Jesus is asking his followers to multiply. And yeah, it is an investment. In this case, it's a financial investment. I mean, he even says to the one who didn't do anything, you could have at least earned me some interest. It's a very investment-related concept. Okay, that concept of investment is clear. So what's he doing? What's the meaning for us today in this parable? If we say, okay, I understand this parable on its face, says you're going to give me some amount of money master and then you go away on a journey and you come back and then what are you going to do with it what's going to happen when you come back well notice one thing that happens is he comes back to make account with each person one by one all right and the other one he finds that the people who did multiply it he's happy with the people that he didn't that didn't multiply it or the one person didn't he's unhappy with okay that's the parable we all can read now what does it mean to us today is he going to come back and make account with you is he saying that in the parable When he says, you have not sown and gathered where you've not scattered seed, he's saying basically you take what is done by other people, probably his own servants. Like you're basically working off the sweat of our backs is what he's saying to him. Okay. And that's why he says, I knew you to be a hard man. I was worried. I was scared because I see that you even collect that which you yourself didn't do, but that we did. Okay. And in this parable, that seems to come out. That there, this God seems to be a little bit more of somebody who's going to hold us to account. And that's why I want to wrestle this parable. Because a lot of, 
just to digress for a second, when we first said, we're going to study the parables for several weeks, some of you are like, I've done this before. Parables are like for baby Christians. Like, really? Dive into this. Tell me what this means to you today. You said invest. That's good. Is he telling us to like save for 401k programs? What's he saying about this parable? Okay. So he's clearly upset with that one guy. Yeah. All right. Does that mean he's going to be upset with us? And, 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 and on what basis? So what we haven't done is we haven't translated between where he's talking to these people in, the, in what I call parable land, in the story, to what it really means to us in real life. you have a comment? The first thing he says is that you're a wicked, lazy servant. Like, he even said that, hey, maybe I didn't say servant, but it implies he maybe wouldn't have been mad at you even if you invested the money and like got some interest on it. You know, like that wouldn't have been maybe as good, but you got something. But you were just so lazy and wicked and fearful that like you didn't do anything. And so I feel like that's more the issue than why he's like mad at the other servant. And so in that sense, just applying it to us, like well, just the, what we do have, whether it be like spiritual gifts, money, all the things that we are given by God, not to be lazy with it, to be active with it, and somehow giving back. Okay, right. I, I, I don't know, like with the whole money thing, I think it's weird how, if that's just a metaphor that he's using it with the money, or if that's actual money, but cause I know that you've talked about it in your money series that you brought up this parable too, investments. But is it a par- I mean, do you think it's a metaphor? I, I look at it, and I look at it to go, hey, you know what, he's given us opportunities to, to go and to work towards something, at least do something with it. Like, even if it's like the message of Christ, like, let's say he's, like, go and do the same goal that your Heavenly Father has done for you. Just go, oh, thanks, you know, see you later. I'm just taking it. I'm not doing anything with it. And you're just, you're not forgiving and you're not doing any of that stuff. Then he's like, well, what's the deal, you know? And it almost seems like it's a cop-out that he's like, you know, I took what you had, but here it is. Like, you didn't do anything with it. But it's almost like, I feel like that's an excuse. You know? Okay. Let's, let's go through the parable and break down the different things that are in there as allegories. Anybody comment, another comment? Yeah. Um seems like there's like this master-servant relationship in this kingdom of the master and it's kind of saying like okay i've been giving you talents in this kingdom and what, what, what i've been giving you these talents and what are you doing for this kingdom of the master so in the same way they're supposed to be responsible in that respect therefore we're into the kingdom of god so what are we doing with our talents to benefit the kingdom of god so it's saying like hey we're responsible for the kingdom of god yeah that's the central that seems to be the central yearning of the parable what he tries to do in this parable, it seems, is give an example of what it means to be a steward of the kingdom. Okay? So let's go through the different analogies because it seems like you guys are hitting it really from different angles. I'll give you one interpretation and maybe even challenge your position on it. What do we do in the church when we talk about talents? Right? We're really good at talking about three things. We kind of like, we, we like little acronyms or little cacophonies or whatever just because they're cute and Christian, right? Like time, talent, treasure, right? Because they're easy to remember, like three T's. Everything has to be three C's, three T's, you know, a bunch of stuff. So we say time, talent, treasure, right? We consider those the things that we should invest for the kingdom, like our time, our talents, like playing the trumpet or the guitar or whatever it is that you do, and our treasure, that we actually do talk about tithing, giving, and investing for the kingdom. In this parable, the master clearly seems to be Jesus. 
those who follow him clearly seem to be the servants, or at least maybe they're not following him well, but those are his servants, the people who are supposed to follow him. And he does come back to make account. Philip, you asked a good question. Would he really come back at the end of our life and say, how much money did you make me? Let's see the balance sheet. Probably not. But I think that by thinking that he won't do that, which he probably won't do that specific thing, we've lived in what I call kind of a cop-out. We tend to ignore that this parable, it can be about your talents, it can be about your time, but it really can also be about your treasure. He wants us to multiply on all levels, everything. It seems like the sin of the lazy servant was that he didn't multiply whatever he was given. Now, some of you have been given different things. Some of you do have amazing talents in music. Some of you have amazing talents in other areas, okay? When I was talking to my class this week, we were talking about the talents they had in creating wealth because they're studying an MBA program. That's a talent. And that is one directed to money. There are people who should be investing and creating money, not because God needs money, but because we're supposed to be doing something with that money while we're here on earth. Because ministries need money. Because starving people need to eat. And because if all we did was just volunteer all the time, that's a way to multiply. But we need to also be multiplying our financial wealth. Last week, we struggled with those two talks on riches, those two parables. It bugged some people. I know it bugged Ryan all week. And it should bug us because he's saying something here that kind of bugs me. But it, that's probably part of the reason these parables were so powerful because you went home thinking, wait a minute, if you just buried the money and you gave it back to him, why is that so bad? But you see that that's bad stewardship on the part of his servants because he said, basically here, I've entrusted you according to your ability. And all you did, you didn't even use your ability. You basically buried it. You sat on it. (laughs) But notice that's what's going on here, isn't it? I mean, notice that's what happens here. When he's, I mean, isn't that what he's saying? I was afraid that I would lose it because you're a hard person. So what is he not doing? Right, he's not risking. He's not risking. He's playing it safe. Well, I think that if God is giving you a certain talent, you have an ability to multiply that talent. What I see, you've got to use that gift to, to do well, to promote, to contribute to society. Okay. This parable, I think, has direct impact on where we are today. This parable is one of the most often overlooked ones, I think, in terms of what it means to us today. And that means that like, we have a duty to multiply. Multiply ministries, multiply funds, multiply effectiveness, multiply disciples. Like Whatever kind of multiplication it is, that's what we're supposed to do when he says, go to the ends of the earth. How are you supposed to do that? It's through multiplication. Yeah. I agree, except that I think that what he ultimately wants to see, if you follow the parable to its natural conclusion, it will be that he wants to see some result from what you were doing. Because he does come and say, I want to make account with you. And by the way, that's consistent with other verses in the Bible where Jesus says, behold, I come and my reward is in my hand. And he wants to see what we have done. 
in a way that the concept of making account with Christ, that concept of actually accounting for what we have done with the life that he gave us as a whole thing, whether it's the money, the talents, our time, everything, is a very strong biblical concept outside the parables. So that's why when I said you don't want to read things in the parables that aren't there, that are inconsistent with what he says, but especially where it's consistent with his direct teaching, then you think that must be part of what he's saying, that he really will make account. Okay? Now there's a part of this that kind of hurts because he takes that servant and ends with this clause. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that wasn't just like, you're bad. It's a very harsh word. And I want to end it with that for a second because I want to show you the next parable that's very similar, takes it even to a different level, even harsher. This is in Luke, the parable of the watchful servants. And he's asking this deep question again about stewardship and faithful servants. And he says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. What's the setup in the parable? In this case, he is talking again about stewardship and wealth. And the disciples are asking him, what exactly do you mean and who is this to be for? Who is supposed to be your steward? And he says, basically answers with a question, who among you will be the kind of wise manager whom the master is going to put in charge of his servants? Now notice in the last parable, we had a master who went away, who gave each servant according to their ability, some more than others. In this parable, the master puts in charge and goes away certain servants to be managers over the others. And these managers are supposed to govern and give to the other servants their food allowance. Think about that for a second. Who is it that we're supposed to be giving food allowance to if we are going to qualify? Are we the people receiving the food allowance or is the Lord maybe saying to you that maybe you're one of the people who's the managers who's supposed to give your food allowance to the other servants. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions, again, if he finds him doing so when he returns. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and then he begins to beat the men's servants and the maid servants, and to eat, drink, and get drunk. The master of that servant will come at a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The Greek for cut him to pieces is the closest translation is literally he will dismember him. So much for the fun parables of Jesus, right? What does that mean? I mean, let's walk through the easy part of the parable. Some of us that proclaim that we follow Christ may qualify, maybe Jesus is asking us to qualify to be the managers over all the other servants, to give them their food allowance. Okay, it's a parable, but imagine here the master goes away and says, you guys are in charge. Make sure you take care of all the servants of my household while I'm gone. So you're the trusted servants, which, what's another word for trusted servant? How about steward, the people who are the stewards of the household? 
okay? Today, we would call them probably the pastors, okay? The people that are in ministry, probably. Maybe it just means everybody who's a follower of Christ. Take a worldwide view of this for a second. One possible interpretation of what he's talking about is that we are the servants who have been put in charge of the household, and the household just happens to be the whole world. And the people that are in the household that are not receiving food, well, you know who they are. People who don't have any food. Okay, that's one possible stretch a little bit of what that parable could apply to. But either way, look at the parable itself. People have been put in charge to give the other servants what they're due. Okay? But here's what we do, or what the people in the parable do. They begin to do exactly the opposite of what the master commanded. Instead of feeding them and taking care of them, they begin to beat them. They begin to eat and drink and get drunk. Basically, they're consuming everything for themselves. My master is taking a long time in coming. Remember last week how in one of the parables Jesus says, even if a man would rise from the dead, you wouldn't believe it. And we talked about the beautiful irony of his words as he started to, like he was predicting his own resurrection and that people still wouldn't believe in him. He was predicting that he would raise Lazarus from the dead and nobody would care. That for all those of us who always want a sign for everything, like show me, if you just showed me, I'd believe in you. He's saying a man could rise from the dead right in front of your eyes and it would make a difference for you unbelieving people. Here he has another one of these little sweet ironic lines, I think, where he says, my master is taking a long time in coming. I think Jesus knew even when he spoke this parable that as the ages went by, we would all start to wonder, is he ever coming back? Is this second coming ever going to happen? Are we just going to go into a third millennium and a fourth millennium? Like, if he's not coming back, what, what does it matter? I have a long life. Why do I have to take care of the other servants? I can do whatever I want. I know what he wants me to do. He wants me to preach his gospel, love other people, lay down my life, love mercy, justice, walk humbly, all those things that he left me. But you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to live for me. Ryan came today this morning, was, or this, this, this evening was saying like he wrestled with last week's talk and came to the conclusion that, you know what, if you looked at your checkbook, probably what, you said 90% of everything we make we're spending on ourselves. That's probably true for all of us. I mean, how much are we really giving away? I mean, if you gave away 10% to other people, you'd be in a small minority of Christians who give away 10% to anybody. That would be like, they say, anywhere between 3 to 5% of Christians who actually give about 10% of their money to anything. Maybe we have that mentality. My master's taken a long time in coming, so I'll just do exactly the opposite of what he said. Instead of giving to others, I'll give to me. Instead of worrying about the food for others, I'll just use it. Okay, so that's pretty clear. But what does it mean when he says he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers? That sounds worse to the other guy who got thrown out in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and called a wicked and lazy servant. This guy gets dismembered. What's Jesus talking about? Is he saying that if you don't take care of the others, you're going to get dismembered? Yeah. Assigning him a place with the unbelievers, meaning he wasn't part of the unbelievers before. So now all of a sudden he's going to hell. Yeah, I mean, in a way, to, when you say he will be, he'll cut to pieces, he's cut off, which is also a metaphor that's used to show that you're cut off from Christ. So does that mean that you believe that if you don't do what Jesus says, you're going to go to hell? Well, that's what I'd be saying. I'm not sure if I know, but I don't see how else to get around it. Anyone would agree with that or disagree? We all just comfortable? Yeah? Um, I think that 
he is talking about hell, but he's talking about a servant of his. It's a big servant, because he's really an unbeliever. He's making a statement on the people, you know, maybe you have a position. I think this is directly to the Pharisees. You have a position, a, a religious position, and yet you're taking advantage of the poor. You're hurting people, and you're putting God, you're signing it with the name of God. Of course I'm going to cut you off in a thousand pieces. But the idea is that this person is destroying the kingdom of God. Okay, well, let me first comment on the last thing you said. You said, if we're Christians and if we're in authority. First, let me say, I think, for the most part, everybody in this room probably is a Christian. Okay? And second of all, if we are, we are in authority. Because if you look at the authority that he's given here, this authority is take care of my other servants. Like, that authority is easy for us to get. It's not like authority like if you happen to be a bishop in the church, right? In this case, every person in this room is an authority. We were given that authority when we were born in a country that has as much wealth as we do, all right? Because that's part of God's provision, and that's part of his words, like, take care of the other people. I think we are an authority, and I think, for the most part, we are Christians. So let's go back to the other part of your comment, which I think is really right on. We said that the never interpret a parable where it contradicts um, the direct teachings of our Lord. So this is one of those places we have to be guided by the teaching because we know that the entrance requirements to heaven are, are accepting his sacrifice. It seems that this person is doing the exact opposite of what the master wants. I think that's what qualifies him as an unbeliever right from the beginning. You know, it says he's assigned a place with the unbelievers, but I think you guys are kind of hitting in it. He is an unbeliever. He might be outwardly saying, I am my master's steward. But I think he's only doing that, like you said, even it might be directed at the Pharisees because there's that outward appearance of, I am my master's steward. But inside, you could see it clearly. This person does not believe in what his master believes in because he's doing exactly the opposite. He's thwarting his master's will. And that's why when he comes back, he deals with him so harshly. If you really want to look at this carefully, Jesus is not being inconsistent at all. People who don't believe in him, who do the opposite of what he wills for them, which is believe in me and have eternal life, will be cut off and put into a place of darkness with unbelievers. Yeah. So, you know, they, they mean well for people, but they still, they don't do... Is this guy doing good? I don't know. Well, well what I'm saying, what I'm saying, I mean, he's like, beating everybody, right, getting drunk. I mean, in this case, you know, when we look at this, we go, those are extreme words, Lord. And he'd probably say, yeah, did you see his behavior? His behavior is pretty extreme. I asked this guy to take care of my people that I care about, my servants. I mean, remember, we, we got to get out of it. The Ameri- we got to get our American mentality out of this, okay? In the New Testament, when you were a master and you had servants, you cared for these people, all right? Now, you could be a bad master, but most masters, these were indentured servants who had to work off a debt that they owed to you and you took care of them. So when he's leaving, he's saying to his steward, take care of them for me while I'm gone. That's why I see so clearly is that, that feeling of Jesus saying, I'm going away, take care of those people who need to eat while I'm gone. Saying that to us, the people who are the managers. Okay? But this guy doesn't do anything good. He does exactly the opposite. He's beating them. He's getting drunk. He's eating all the food for himself. But Jesus goes on with this one real fast. He says, without any like transition sentence, he goes right into this. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. 
But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. Hey, we've spent a long time talking about the rewards that, that Jesus will someday give us, but we never talked about the fact that he might show up with a stick. Is that a fair reading of this parable at the end? Or is he just going off the theme that he had just started? This is almost in contrast to what he was just saying. And by the way, this is a tough parable. We need to be talking about this for hours. And maybe tonight when we go out and hang out a little bit, we can actually just process some of this. And I, don't, I think we'll come back to just deal with the end of it next week. But we're starting off with one person who does exactly the opposite. That guy gets dismembered and thrown out with the unbelievers. Now we're dealing with a servant who kind of knows the will, but does not really do what the master wants. He gets beaten pretty badly, and, but not cut off, though. So it seems like we're talking about a different type of person. And then there's one who just kind of doesn't know, is more negligent or stupid, and that person gets beaten with a few blows. Okay? We do know Jesus' words are from those to whom much is given, much will be demanded. That seems somewhat consistent with what he's saying in this parable. If you know my will and don't do it, you have more guilt, you have more penalty than those who just don't know but yet do some things wrong. I mean, we got to be careful not to take it too far because we know that in the end, grace covers all, Jesus forgives, and our punishment is like we're escaping the punishment. We're not getting what we deserve, but He's still speaking this parable. We still have to figure out what is he talking about. Yeah. Because I assumed it was talking about unbelievers. Just like yeah, I actually, like I actually believe they do. And just to be fair, so you don't know that I'm just, you know, I have one unfair advantage on you so far is I read the commentary on this because it really freaked me out. You know, I was like trying to understand it. So let me show you from everyone who much or who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It comes right after that parable. So that's why the context that I'm saying is, sounds like he's saying that, and then he comes right out and actually says it. If you get nothing else out of tonight, just focus on these words for a moment. I don't think there's anybody in this room who has not been given much. Don't look at it maybe from our next-door neighbor perspective. Look at it from a global perspective. Look at it from the people that hopefully you meet if we go Tuesday night and meet some people. Look at it from the perspective of what do you have the fact that you have just clothing and a house and that we're going to go out tonight and you can buy anything you want to eat and you don't even have to think about it. Much will be demanded. It's not just about wealth and possession, but these are passages about stewardship. And he's talking about money. Luke 12 is all about money. The entire chapter is about money and stewardship. It can also be about the knowledge you've been trusted, the grace that you have, the chances you have, so many things. And we're really wrestling here with this simple concept that's easy to speak, very, very difficult to follow our whole lives. We have so much. We're not doing very much. We're much like the servant who buried it into the ground if we don't do much. We're also much like the gluttonous servant who used it for himself. And that theme is going over and over in these parables. You know, some of you are like, well, that kind of seems to sound like what, it, what we talked about last week with the parables of the riches. Yes, because 16 out of those 38 parables that Jesus spoke were on this subject. He kept hammering the subject home over and over and over. So the question is, what are we going to do? What do we do with what we've been given? Like, how practically are we supposed to take care of the other people? Jesus is going to make account with us. 
it's not going to be maybe like the financial account, but it is going to be the account that says, I gave you so much. I think the Lord will demand from us much. And he has entrusted to us much, and I think he expects to see a return on his investment. I think he expects to, for us to say, Lord, you gave me this much, and here is what I did with it. So he can say, good and faithful servant, that's what I want from you. Here's the commentary just so that you can see, and I'll read it. This is a summary of what those passages meant, just in case you're interested. It says, to be associated with Jesus is to have responsibility before him. Those who are sensitive to his return and their accountability to him will serve him faithfully. God will richly reward the faithful. Those who take this accountability less seriously will be sorted out according to their deeds. Those who are never really, who never really responded, so that's going back to the person who just did the opposite. Those who never really responded to the master and ignored his return by doing the opposite of what he asked will seal their place among the unfaithful. Those who are knowingly negligent will be discipled or disciplined, excuse me, while those who act in ignorance will be less severely disciplined. So maybe there's a hint that the last group really might be believers who were somehow just negligent. I don't know. You're going to have to wrestle with that. I wish I could leave it in a place where I go, this is what you're supposed to do. But these words remain tough. These words are the kinds that you just want to think, you know what, it'd be great if I just started with, who then is the wise servant go dot, 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 and end up with, to those who've been given much, much will be demanded. I can't do that. I can't cut out his words. They're tough and they hurt. They're kind of sharp. But I think it's clear, there's nobody in this room, I think, who's going to disagree or take me on on this point, that we have a lot and we can do something with it. And maybe next week that's what we're going to pick up right there on what are we going to do? What can we do? Does he give us any more clues in the parables? But I think it would be shameful to just read words like this and see the warnings and understand what he's saying and then just leave it there and go, okay. Otherwise, we're no different than the lazy servant who just said, there were just so many choices, Lord, I didn't know what you wanted me to do, so I didn't do anything. Let's pray. Lord, with words like these, I just feel like there's so much tension sometimes. We just, we may be like those people in the first century who are just scratching their heads and wondering what you were trying to say. And even today, Lord, these words are so harsh. They wake us up, maybe. We know that you used difficult examples sometimes to get people's attention, to show them their true place. Just like last week, Lord, when we studied how you brought people to a place where they had to realize their own mortality and their own death just to wake them up to life. Maybe this is what you're doing here. Showing us how carefully we need to plan our lives to do what you want us to do. How much we could just ignore things and let them go until it's too late and we realize at the last moment that we haven't done the things you asked us to do. Lord, I'm going to pray right now that you would somehow bug us this whole week with this concept. That you would not let us rest. Holy Spirit, convict us in every act we do this week that does not further the care of the other servants in this world. Show us how much we care only for ourselves, 
how we live life for ourselves. And in every one of those acts, Lord, convict us. Remind us that we have been given much and that you, Lord, tell us directly that much will be demanded. May we be faithful, Lord, to be found to be a good and faithful servant, to show you that we have responded and done much with what you've given. Pray these things in your name. Amen.